you turn with me to the epistle, the epistles of John. The epistles of John. A lot of you would have read these epistles recently. In fact, maybe even read them in preparation for class today. If you read the epistles of John recently, can I ask you a question? How are the epistles of John different from the epistles of uh, Paul? How do they read differently? Open to the public to comment. To be on videotape for the next ten years. Stan? They're more personable. Uh, he, he writes okay, he writes the whole churches for one thing. Okay? Uh, what what is there anything that makes you think? You just kind of scan through the pages even while I talk. Is there anything that makes you agree with what Stan just said? They're more personable? Anything in the way John talks, yes? Friends. Yeah, right. Yeah, he's always writing to his friends and his children and his dear children, my dear children. That's absolutely right. The language of children, the language of friends. Very good. And what else do you notice about John's letters? They're short, somebody says over here. Yes. Okay, yes. Don, over in the back. Okay, they're easier to understand. Easier to understand than what? Okay. Okay. They're, they're easier to understand. I'll say grasp because it's shorter than understand and I'm running out of space. Yes. Single subject. Well, now, what do you mean by that? Yeah, he, keep, he, keeps, he keeps pounding away at a few themes. Is that fair? I think it's true that Paul maybe will hit dozens of themes, whereas a few things just keep coming up over and over again. Always different, but same topics. Yes? That's true. You know, we said this is personable, and I agree with you because of the friends, dear friends, and children and so on. But it is interesting that Paul, Paul's style of opening is very different. He tells who he is and what he's writing about, and he tells what the problem is. He gives some kind of more data to go by. Whereas the letters of John, especially 1 John, takes a while to you... It feels, I'm going to say this sounds odd. I'm going to agree with this, but I'm also going to say that 1 John feels more like a treatise. In this regard, it's just, it could stand as an essay. And you don't really know. To, you know he's writing to his friends, but you don't know who those friends are. You don't know where they're located. You know that something's bothering them, but you don't quite know what it is. Right? Well, let's say that's a, I'll, I'll say that's a good list, uh, especially because that's pretty close to my list. And, uh, and move on from there. There is one clue in these letters. These are really good points, and they are in my notes. There's one thing that clues us in as to why John is writing. He seems to be writing with a little bit of a sense of timelessness, as if he's writing to every Christian, because it doesn't say to the church at Galatia or Philippi or something. There is one clue, one statement that I think we could easily skip, that actually is very important in understanding the atmosphere of John. It's found in 1 John 2, 18 and 19. He says, My dear children, or dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know there's the last hour. So he obviously, although we don't know exactly what it is, like Paul and the Judaizers, or, or the, you know, in the church of Corinth, you know exactly what the problem is. He's very upset about something. 
It's the hour of the Antichrist. That's strong language. But we don't know what it is yet. Verse 19, They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going shows that none of them belong to us. This, I think, is a crucial problem for the letter, for the people of First John. Leaders within the church left. And you have to understand, they didn't leave in the sense of going from a Presbyterian church to a Baptist church, or a Baptist church to a community church, or community church to a charismatic church. What it means here is, there was only one church, there were no denominations. The church is a small and oppressed minority, and they left. They didn't leave the church, they left the faith. They departed. There are indications that, although we can't be absolutely sure, that this might have been a substantial group. They might very well have been teachers, because he spends a lot of time speaking against the errors of this group, as if to, to deal with the fact that they didn't just leave because they wanted an easier life. They left because they were teaching something very different and, and may well have tried to take others with them in the teaching. I have in the outline before you the, uh, a little description of these who left. Occasional letter is then conflict in the church. A group has seceded and attempted to lead, lead others astray. Look at chapter 2, verse 26, just a little bit farther down. I'm writing you these things, these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. See that? They didn't just leave. They said, you come with us. Come on with us into, John says, this error. He goes on to call them, as you saw in chapter 2, verse 18, he calls them antichrists. Over in chapter 4, he says, dear friends, verse 1, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, because there are many false prophets. So he seems to be working with false prophets who have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But everyone, but every spirit who does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. Now, some people, we're going to get to the book of Revelation later, some people think about the Antichrist as someone who is to appear in the last seven years as a final outbreak or, if I may use a big word, recrudescence of evil bursting onto the earth. The Antichrist is for the last few years. But when does John say the Antichrist appears? He says the Antichrist is already there. What does that mean? It means you just have to, don't get worked up about the Antichrist and, and try to decide, you know, who is the Antichrist? You know, is it the head of the UN or is it the head of the, you know, it's never somebody from America, I guess. Well, no, if you're, if you're a Democrat, it could be a Republican. And if you're a Republican, it could be a Democrat. But it's, it's never anybody in your group that's the Antichrist. But that's all wrong, that kind of thinking. The Antichrist is simply someone who is anti-Christ. The Antichrist is against Christ. There are many Antichrists. There may be one final Antichrist who's called the Antichrist. Don't deny that. But there are many antichrists, and they speak against Christ in his, in his ministry, in his nature. They're deceivers. 
Second John verse 7 says. And they have to be watched. We have to be warned. Okay, what do they say? What is this Antichrist teaching? Well, what they say is, back to chapter 4 verse 2, which I just read a moment ago, they say, it's implied, that, well, let's put it this way, every spirit that acknowledges Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Turn it around. Uh, these false teachers probably then teach that Jesus, or Christ, or the Son of God, did not come in the flesh. They have some problem with the enfleshment of the second person of the Trinity. He's not come in the flesh. He's not the Christ. There's also something else they seem to teach. They seem to teach that it's possible for Christians to live a sin-free life. We'll see that in a little bit. Now, when this takes place, when this teaching occurs, it can cause doubt in the church. When the body splits in half and false teachers are presenting their doctrines. John 5.13 tells us why he wrote. 1 John 5.13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. His purpose then is to give an assurance to those who deserve it, but also to disabuse those who think they're saved who don't deserve to think they're saved. Um, Soteric status is my big word way of saying, are you saved or not? And self-awareness is, do you know it or not? There are four ways that we can stand before God. You can be, worst case scenario is, lost and not know it. That means you're not saved and you have no awareness of the fact. Second possibility is that you can be lost, but at least you know it. That's better. Then you may at least be open to the gospel, open to instruction. The third scenario is you can be saved. That's a plus over there in the salvation side. But you don't know it, which means you live with doubt and you live with questioning of yourself and uh, maybe even self-recrimination and, and questions about God's love. The fourth thing, which is, of course, the best, is that you're saved and you know it. That's called having assurance. John says in 5.13, I write you these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's what he's trying to do. It's the purpose then of the church, if I could put something else up here just for a second, the purpose of good teachers to comfort the afflicted, but also to afflict the comforted. You afflict those who are falsely comforted. Think I'm all right with God. No. If they're not all right with God, it's an improvement they realize they're in trouble. On the other hand, it is the responsibility of good Christian leaders to comfort those who are falsely afflicted, those who question themselves and doubt themselves and say, how could God love someone like me? What John is trying to do then is actually get people, you could put it this way, into either this category, the negative-negative, or the positive-positive category. But putting out certain tests of genuine faith, either you'll be saved and know it, or you'll be lost. Sorry, this category. Or you'll be lost and know it. But he's trying to get people through his tests <clears throat> to a level of self-awareness. And we can get a little more light again. That's the purpose of John. 
Let me just go back and pick up a couple other things before we get to the actual content. So, uh, we have a, a personal treatise on this subject of are you saved or not, and, and how can we instruct his dear children about these false teachers. It's written by John, I haven't said this yet, by John the Apostle, who might take to be one of the twelve, an eyewitness. We'll talk about his uh, way of describing his experience of Christ in a little while. He calls himself the Elder. He doesn't call himself an apostle. He calls himself the elder. And the reason why he calls himself the elder is by this time he was, he was really old. Best guess is that the letters of John were written somewhere between 85 and 95 A.D. And if Jesus died and rose in the year 30 A.D. and John was only 25, let's just say he was only 25, then by this time he is about 80, 85, 90 years old. So he's an elder. It's also a way of a non-pushy way of saying that he has authority over the church. So again, John, just give you a step back and got a little background on John, is writing in order that the church may know that they have eternal life. Who has it? Those who believe in the name of the Son of God. Now that's, that's an important question not only for the past, but also for the present. Can I ask you to play a little game with me for a little bit? Now, what are some reasons why people can doubt their salvation? People who are Christians, people who do indeed belong to the Lord, why do they have trouble accepting that? Yes. Okay, guilt because of a great, I'll call it, you said crimes, but I'll just change a little bit and say great sins. Because not all sins are crimes and not all crimes are sins. But I'm not going to give for example, not bowing down to the emperor is a crime, but it's not a sin, right? And lying to your mother is not a crime, but it is a sin. So I'm going to say sins. Great sins and guilt, David. Okay, there's the whole flip side of this, and that is good works. And, and Dave says, not a desire to do good works, which could include things like lethargy. If I'm really a Christian... Why don't I have more zeal? Why don't I have more passion? Why, don't, why am I not willing to sacrifice more? And so you question yourself. That's a good one. That's, I mean, it's a bad one, but it's, it's apt. Yes. Yeah, feeling you failed God. You know, I had a chance to do something for the Lord, and I didn't. Good. Others, I see hands here and there. Yes, Sandra. You don't feel saved. Very good. Uh, I'm going to call that emotionalism. Following your feelings, you say, "Well, gee, I don't really, I don't, I don't have any buzz or any juice." You know, I used to have some juice, used to have some buzz. Now I don't. Maybe I've lost it, Margaret. Well, I'm, I'm sure it will if you keep talking. Ah, uh-uh. okay. Ah, yes, 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 yes. People who are who are in love with skepticism. People who don't want to commit, it's, it's safe. No, that's a good one. It took you a little while to get it out, but it was a good one. So, some people are at ease questioning everything. They don't want to come down and settle. That's right. John? Oh, okay, now, you know what? I thought you were going a different way, and I, I, think, um, I think I'm going to... Uh, how can we... Can't put God in a box. How can I know that God has saved me? Is that what you're driving at? Or something else? Ah, uh-uh. ah, okay. 
Okay, very good. Somebody who just who has endless answer, endless questions. Is there an answer for all my questions? That's right. Can I go to this one, which I thought you were going to say, John? Do you know that the Catholic Church explicitly teaches that you cannot know that you have eternal life? That in fact, the Catholic Church, probably those of you who are not in your heads, maybe have had a lot of contact with Catholics when you grew up Catholic. But they teach it's actually, um, I don't know if they'd quite say blasphemy, but highly presumptuous, highly, to a very high degree, intruding into the realm of God to say, I know that I'm redeemed. Because they say, you know, you never know when you might commit a mortal sin. And, uh, you know, really only a saint can have that vision or that knowledge of God. That's a gift that God gives only to very, very few. Because you never know when you may spurn God. And uh, they put grace within a sacramental system, which basically says to advance spiritually, you have to to partake of the sacraments in a certain order. Let me get one more. Okay, very good. Uh, That's right. I failed God. God failed us. This would be something like, oh, you know, a really hard one is when a dear one dies. You know, if your husband or your wife dies when they're just 30, or a child dies, or maybe you're, you know, you're, how could God have let my parent, die, my father, die when I was only 15? Um, or, something, or, you know, get a bad disease, and so on. Okay, that's a good list. It's a good list. Uh, First John says that it can be caused by seeing people you admire, leaders, fellow Christians, leave the church. That's what he sees. Uh, There are many others. How can God permit suffering? Lots of other questions. How do you answer the question, how can I know that I'm saved, that I'm right with God? John's approach, this is his book, it's all about this, assurance of salvation, knowing you belong to God, is to blend the subjective and the objective answer. The objective answer is, John says, I saw Christ. I touched him. I'm a witness. It's true. Jesus Christ came in the flesh. My testimony is true. The subjective is to say we have assurance from the Holy Spirit. For example, John 3, 1 John 3.24 says, Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. We know that he lives in us by the Spirit he gave us. Or 4.13 says, We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. So you can know with these two things. Now those who trouble the church, take them away from assurance, that we're a part of the community, have errors that push against that. Uh, for example, one of their errors is, I started talking about this a little bit earlier, it appears that they had a hard time believing that Jesus... Christ, I'll put it this way. They had a hard time with the bodily life of Jesus. That was back in chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. Maybe they minimized the bodily life of Jesus. There was a man who lived around this time. His name was Serinthus, one of the first known heretics of the early church. Serinthus' heresy was that Jesus was just a man, a carpenter from Nazareth, He became the Son of God at his baptism, when the Holy Spirit came down upon him. And then right before the crucifixion, the Spirit left him. Because God could never suffer crucifixion, 
And so when, when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Sarintha says, it's because the Holy Spirit left him. That was what they taught. In general, it seems to be a part of a, a Greek idea that bodily life is not that important or not fully worthy of God or the gods or you know, the, the body is a prison house for the soul and we really need to be free from it. At a hard time, some Greeks had a hard time believing that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, that, that the man Jesus is very God. Now, if you have a hard time believing that, you see it can lead to other problems. It could lead to the idea that God doesn't really care about bodily life all that much anyway. And what we do with our bodies isn't really all that important. So you can live licentiously. Another possibility is that it would make it difficult for Jesus to be the Savior. It would, it would detract from his atonement, wouldn't it? If Jesus' physical suffering was just the man Jesus and the Holy Spirit had left, it would make the cross almost immaterial. And that would undercut the idea that Jesus is the Savior of the world. So those are, you know, it doesn't say it exactly in so many words anywhere that this is their problem. But they did, they did deny that Jesus is the Christ, chapter 2, verse 22. They did deny the Son, 2.23. And they denied that Jesus came in the flesh, 4, 1 to 3, and also 2 John, verse 7. It also seems that some of these people thought, I'll put it this way, once you start not worrying about bodily life, you can go two different ways. One is, you can go off in the direction of license. I already mentioned that. And uh, just living in sin, which John, for example, in, in 1 John 3, 6 to 10, is, is saying, you know, you can't live in sin. If, if you're born of God, you don't commit sin. You can't sin. Whoever does not do right is not of God. That's 1 John 3, 6 to 10. Another possibility is that you can say, listen, bodily life isn't all that important, and so you don't scrutinize it all that carefully, and you become convinced falsely that you're just about perfect. Again, I would ask you to consider, have you known people, have you had this conversation with anybody? And you ask them, you know, somehow it comes up, well, what sins do you struggle with? And they say, well, I don't really struggle with any. Well, can you name any sins you've committed? No, I can't really think of any. Have you, how many of you had a conversation like that? Look around, look how many hands are going up. They're saying, I, I have. Can't really think of anything in particular I ever did wrong. Well, I guess I, you know, I guess maybe I took took a quarter that belonged to my brother when I was ten, you know, and they're forty-eight. And that's all they can think of. Maybe I'm exaggerating slightly, but they 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 don't have a sense of how bad sin is. And John talks about that as well. He says, you know, if we say we haven't sinned, we make God a liar, and His word is not in us. First John one ten. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. 1 John 1.8 He seems to be concerned with people who think that sin is a matter of the past and not a problem of theirs at all. Okay. How can we know that we belong to the Lord then? There are three tests. There are three tests to tell whether you belong to the Lord or not. Test number one is moral. The moral test is we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commandments 
Whoever lives, claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. The moral test is basic obedience. The qualification is no Christian is sinless. Anyone who claims to be sinless is a liar. We all have to ask for forgiveness. Yet we don't walk in sin. We sin, but we resist it as a way of life. Put another way. The Christian is someone who is miserable when she sins or when he sins. You sin, God sends you a sense of guilt and a sense of unhappiness and dis-ease. So you, if you know you committed a sin, you really are miserable for, for a half a day or so. Because you don't, that's not habitual. You don't walk in that. Okay? Does that make sense? That's one. Two, the social test. Love of the brothers. 1 John 3, 14 to 18 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. God is love. All love comes from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God. Whoever does not love does not know God. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Love here, not a feeling or an emotion. I don't feel love, therefore I don't belong to God. Rather, demonstrated love. The third test is theological, good doctrine. True Christian believes Jesus is the Son of God, chapter 5, verse 5. He believes that Jesus has come in the flesh, 4, 1 to 4. He believes that Jesus is the Savior of the world, 4, 14, 1, 5 through 2, 6. Now you may say, does, does this little triad handle all these questions over here? Well, the answer is yes and no. Some of them it bypasses. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't address the problem of somebody who says, as Sandra, I think, is when he said it, I don't feel saved. John says, get over it. You know? <laughs> Your feelings aren't really all that important. Maybe you just haven't been getting enough sleep lately. It doesn't change God's plan for your life. There it is. Are you fundamentally living? A, a, are you walking with the Lord? Are you loving your brothers? Do you confess the true faith? Rebuke your feelings. How about a skeptic? says, I don't have an answer to the question of what happens to those who live in Madagascar in the third century and have never heard about Christ. So, well, you know, that's not really the problem. The problem is you. You have heard about Christ. And what do you confess and what do you say? Now, some of the others make a lot of sense. Good works, great sins and so on, and John has a direct answer for those. So goes the purpose of First John. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. How can we be sure we're saved? Now, we've looked at kind of a survey of the whole. I'd like to look at one passage in particular and pick up some ideas from a careful examination. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We, may, we write this to make our joy complete. Do you see the repetition of 
We have seen, we have heard, we have seen, we have heard, we witness, we testify. And the idea is that John wants to make it clear that he is a witness of this. Now, I've talked to you a little bit before about Greek and Greek tenses and moods and so forth. And with regard to Greek tenses, there are, there are a number of tenses. Oh, don't look at that. Sorry. There. That's for later. We're in 1 John now. Okay, here we go. Very interested in making sure that we, we get the impression clearly that he himself was a witness. Now, there, there are certain tenses that we use in languages. There's the present tense, it's what's happening now. There's the aorist, the past tenses. There's a tense called the perfect tense in Greek. The perfect tense conveys the idea that a past action has continuing consequences. Something that happened in the past still counts today. One of the clearest ways of getting at this is the phrase you read in the Bible a number of times, it is written. It is written is in the perfect tense because it was written in the past, but the fact that it's written has ongoing consequences, right? Because it stands authoritative, it remains written. So that's the idea. Many of these verbs, maybe most of the verbs in this section, are in the perfect tense. We have seen, we have touched. Meaning, we did it, and the consequences still stand because I am reliably testifying of it to you. Jesus is come in the flesh. We've seen him, we touched him, we looked at him. And even the word, now I asked, I said I needed a volunteer, and then right after the break, Mike stood up. So, Mike, I'm going to ask you to... Be my volunteer. Maybe I'll use Jana too. But I won't. You know, you can stay. You can stay there. Um, this is this is handling. This is this is all right. This is this is touching. Okay, right? He says we touched, but he also says our hands handled. This is handling. All right. <laughs> you didn't have to let your neck shake. But anyway, that's the idea of handling. You know. And when you yeah okay. See when you grab somebody. When I just grab them here. I, can, I felt his clavicle for a second there. I feel his shoulder blade. I'm going to give him a back rub any second now. And uh, feel you know, the muscle mass. He's in pretty good shape and so forth. We're done. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you. I, I handled him as opposed to touching over here in this row. Touching would be just kind of, you know, you know, grazing the cloth a little bit or something. John is saying, I did not graze the cloth. Okay. He's saying, I handled him. Meaning, maybe what? <clears throat> maybe uh, they were at sea one time, and you know, there was a wave, and they all bumped into each other, and, and uh, kind of crashed in, and, and he felt you know, the weight of Jesus' body, his bones, his muscles, his sinews, his tendons. Or maybe you know, reclining at a meal. They kind of would be real close to each other physically. Uh, maybe breaking bread, and you know, passing on the bread, and their hands would touch, and you'd feel... The fingers, and this kind of goes with the idea. Incidentally, remember, you know those pictures of Jesus, those you know pictures of Jesus with uh, you know curly hair and you know real pale skin, kind of, and and uh, you know these big luminescent blue or not blue but brown eyes, you know, kind of like like a baby's eyes, real big, you know, and he looks so effete. He looks so so. Androgynous, you know. Jesus was a carpenter. 
You know, I don't think he had long, delicate fingers somehow. You know? I think he had big, thick, rough fingers. And I think his hands were strong. I think his arms were strong. I think his legs were strong. I think he was lean and tough. He was a man. He was a real man. He worked with his hands. He traveled. He walked hundreds of miles. When he wanted to go from one place to another, he did not hop into a you know, great big velour plush Buick. He walked. And when you, when you bumped into Jesus, you did not bump into a pillow. And so he says he handled him. He is the eyewitness. He was, he was there. I'll tell you a personal story about that. Well, one time, I kind of was studying this passage when a, a prospective student once um, kind of asked me a question. He called from a distance, like about 250 feet or so. He just kind of shouted at me. He said, are you Dr. Calhoun? And I said, no, I'm Dr. Doriani. He just kind of hung his head like, you know, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you Dr. Calhoun? You know? <laughs> and and uh, already, you know, just being shouted at for 250 feet and, you know, being made to feel somehow that I'd done something wrong, that I wasn't Dr. Calhoun. I was already a little bit, maybe a tiny bit on edge. He said, so you're not? Well, where can I find him? And what does he look like? I said, well, you know, he's, he's older than me. He's, he's about my height. He's a, little bit, he's a little bit lighter than me. He said, lighter than you? <laughs> At which point I almost said, get over here. <laughs> Put your hands around my neck. Feel my biceps. You know, pound my pectoral muscles. I'm six feet and a half inch, I weigh 180 pounds. I'm not that skinny. I didn't do it. If I had, he probably would never have come. Actually, I don't think he has because I've been telling this story for, for about four years and nobody's ever come up and said, that was me. So, of course, I've, I've changed the story just a little bit, but anyway. Um, real touching. John says, I was there. I touched him. I handled him. This is a real man, real body, sensory contact. I was there. I testified to you. That's the objective testimony. You haven't seen. We haven't seen Christ, but, but he is a real man, embodied. Well, that's not all, though. Uh, the gospel says who Jesus is. It also says what he does, what he did. And that's described in chapter 1, verse 5, through chapter 2, verse 6. And here, we have as a, as a theme um, an interest in the atoning work of Christ, and also an interest in clearing up the misunderstanding, as he's going to go through it and say, you know, the true Christian loves and obeys. He wants to make it very clear that, uh, you know, back to this little thing about failing God, that real Christians do sin and Christ provides the remedy for that. I want you to notice in chapter 1 verses 8 and 9 the way he describes the work of Christ, maybe even verses 7, 8 and 9. He says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Now that, that means we're progressively purified. That's what he's saying. As we walk in the light being purified. If we claim to be without sin, verse 8, we deceive ourselves, the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from unrighteousness. Now, do you notice in those two verses that the word sin had a little variation? Do you see it? 
the first time it's mentioned, it is sin. And the second time it's mentioned, it is sins. Now, what John, I believe, is after is to make it clear to us that we have a problem with sin and a problem with sins. They are two connected things. We sin as a quality. That's what we do. We also commit sins. Because we are captives to sin or because there is still a sin principle at work in us, we commit various sins. The sins come out of our sinfulness, out of our unrighteousness, as verse 8 puts it. Now, if we say that we don't have a problem here, if we claim to be without sins, we deceive ourselves, we're fooling ourselves, we're saying we don't have a problem when we do have a problem. And besides that, we also, if we say we've never sinned, verse 10 says, make him into a liar. Now, how do we make God a liar? How do we make God a liar when we say we don't sin? Maybe you'd think we'd be saying that we make ourselves a liar if we say we haven't sinned. But John says, no, you're making God a liar. Now, how do you make God a liar when you say you haven't sinned? Well, two ways, maybe even three. One, you're saying, you know, your standards of holiness, the Ten Commandments and all the rest, don't really count. They don't really label sin, sin. Because the truth is, we don't keep them. And if we say we're not sinners, we're saying, well, those laws don't really count. That's one. Two, God says we're sinners. And if we say we're not, then we're saying, I'm right and you're wrong, God. Three, if we say we haven't any sin, we make God into a liar, we might say in a deeper sense, that we make the atonement of Christ, which is where we're going in just a verse or two here, we make the atonement of Christ into a senseless thing. Because if we're not sinners, if we just commit sins, and we don't have a, a problem with sin as a quality, then what did Jesus die for anyway? What was the purpose of the incarnation? If we just committed a few minor peccadilloes from time to time and, and uh, you know, broke a few social mores and exercised inappropriate behavior, that lovely phrase people use nowadays for everything from, you know, scratching your head too much to letting off guns in school. If, if that's just inappropriate behavior, then, then what did Jesus come for anyway? Let me use an illustration with you that I got from one of my professors. He says, if you think about the atonement of Christ and deny that it was necessary, it changes everything. Go to a railroad yard in your mind's eye. Railroad yard has dozens of tracks and hundreds of cars and engines slowly moving around, getting the various freight in the proper position to be shipped. They have a little tower, kind of like the tower at an at a airport. And somebody's at the tower, and they're controlling all the traffic. Suppose next that a child, a little child who has no sense of the danger, but maybe a little sense of excitement, wanders onto the yard and in fact is wandering right into the path of a track down which a train is moving slowly. Suppose that a worker at the yard sees the child and can detect easily enough that the child is headed very clearly into harm's way and then dashes from his location as fast as he possibly can sees that the moment of truth is upon him, hurls himself across the track, pushes the child into the dirt, 
but is himself slain in the process because he can't get across the track in time. What do we call such a man? We call him a hero. But what if the man was in fact in the tower and could have averted the problem by simply pressing a little switch so that the train would have moved effortlessly onto another track. If he could have pressed the switch and chose instead of pressing the switch to dash down the steps across the yard and throw himself in front of the train and get killed in the process, we would call him a fool. Now, the point, of course, is about God, we might say, in the tower and us wandering across the tracks. If there was a way for God to redeem us, short of the death of his son, and he didn't choose it, what we call it? The very fact that God sent his son indicates that there was no other way. Now, for one thing, we have the prophets in the Old Testament, and they never, they never, you know, they told the truth, but they never reformed anybody. The priests who did their rituals, but they never saved anybody. The kings who led, but led poorly. The judges, who themselves need to be judged on many occasions. You look at the whole Old Testament, there's no redeemer going to come from the Old Testament. But now, if you say you're not a sinner, and you don't have a problem with sin, you make God out to be a liar and a fool. Because if we didn't have a problem with sin that was leading to death, why on earth did he send his son? It'd be foolish, not to mention loveless. For him to do that. Now, I want to make it clear, God does not absolutely have to redeem us. You understand that's an act of his, his determination and love and sovereign uh, choice and decision. He, he's under, under, any, under any obligation to do that. But once he decides to redeem, then we say with the New Testament witness that Jesus is the only Savior, the one who had to save now, this is described, this idea that Jesus is the Savior who delivers us from sin, in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My dear children, he says, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Most of you maybe have maybe heard the translation, we have an advocate. It's a very legal term that's used here. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he is... The atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now again, some of you would know, maybe from the King James or other translations, that this word atoning sacrifice in 1 John 2.2 is often translated propitiation. Propitiation. The word propitiation, you know the word propitiation? I have it there in your notes for you. Do I have it there in your notes? Yes. The word propitiation is, is uh, falling out of favor these days. Uh, for one thing, because people get tired of big words, they want to make everything easy to understand. Uh, also, it's easily misunderstood. In fact, I will tell you that I used the word propitiation just not this last Sunday, yesterday, but eight days ago in a, a large church with, you know, sort of a large first church kind of church with, you know, 1,500 people there or thereabouts. And, you know, obviously a grand edifice, the kind of building that draws all kinds of people just because it's a beautiful building and not necessarily because they know what they're doing. And sure enough, there was a sign that somebody had been there that maybe wasn't really a member of that church because it was a very definitely evangelical church. And as he left, he just kind of said something like, uh, 
you know, enjoyed your sermon, but was surprised with your, ma with, uh, your magical conception of the universe. And I said, what? <laughs> well, you know, propitiation and all that. Well, now what, they're thinking, what he was thinking of uh, is the idea prevalent in liberal churches that propitiation is a concept not worthy of God because in the ancient world, the act of propitiation was uh, deeply tainted by false concepts. Specifically, the idea was that the gods often became angry capriciously, you know, if you know your Greek mythology. And the only way to get them to stop being angry with you is to offer them a really big gift or something to buy their favor back. Clear example of this would be when in the Trojan War, when the, uh, the troops went back to, went over to rescue Helen, they were becalmed. And Agamemnon, in charge of the fleet, uh, wondered what it might be, why they were becalmed for, I forget now, but you know, a couple weeks or maybe six weeks. And someone said, well, it's because the gods are angry. And so he sent back and had his daughter offered as a human sacrifice to appease the wrath of the gods. And the idea was, the gods get angry, nobody knows why, and you give them a big gift. The more important it is, the more important the god is, the bigger the gift is, and you give a big gift by sacrificing something precious to you. And people say that's repugnant, and of course they're right. It is repugnant to think you can buy the gods by sacrificing your child. But you see that the, the thing is, the word propitiation is the word here. And what we have to do is realize that propitiation can be misconstrued, but it can also be properly understood. The proper understanding is that God is angry. God is angry at human sin. The Greek gods were angry capriciously because they weren't get, given enough credit or something. But the living God is really angry at sin. Even as, brothers and sisters, we ought to be angry at sin and not be jaded towards sin, right? I'll never forget when I first became a father. And my first child was just, oh, you know, just a couple months old. And I, was, I was driving around and I heard a story on the radio. The radio story went like this. News, you know, one of these, you know, intended to shock headlines. A man as, was driving drunk in California or Oregon or someplace far away from me, but it you know, made the national news. was driving drunk in California at 10 in the morning. Car jumped the curb, you know, 8-inch, 1-foot-high curb, drove onto a sidewalk and hit some children and killed one of them. Now, here's the punchline. And the man had been arrested the night before for drunk driving... And the law in California said that if someone's been arrested for drunk driving more than twice, they must be put in jail for, you know, some, let's say, two weeks. And it was the fourth time he'd been arrested for drunk driving in the last month. And the judge did not put him in jail. He just let him go. And you know what? You're just plain mad. You see, that was terrible, that drunk driver, and that was terrible, that judge. The law said if, he, if he's been drunk three or four times, and he was drunk, and he killed a child, it's unspeakable to be that drunk, maybe a lot of drive. Now, that anger that we feel 
that story. Now, I felt it maybe more because I was a new parent. Probably most of you would have some sense of anger. It's not right. It's not right. That anger is actually not wicked. It's something that God, it's part of the image of God. That it's, it's, it's right for us to be angry at sin. At sin toward our fellow man, at, at self-destructive acts, and at rebellion or hatred toward God. It's right. God is angry. He is justly angry. And Jesus is a propitiatory sacrifice to put away that wrath. Not to buy it off, but to say there is something that really needs to be set right. And Jesus says, I will do what it takes. I will bear the punishment that evildoers deserve. The anger that's deserved. God is a just God. He cannot pass over sin. He is just and he is holy. And Jesus, as an act of love, offers himself as the remedy, as the one who will bear the anger of God. That's the language that's used here. Jesus is a propitiation for us. If I could just do a quick review, and then I'll make t- maybe take a question or two uh, on this. Quick review, there are some other words that are used to describe uh, the sacrifice. Now I've got myself tangled up in my cord. There we go. Um, there are some other words that are used in the Bible. Uh, very briefly, they are a justification. So we're, here, let me give it to you this way, through, through the dominant metaphor. Atonement is the broad umbrella word. It means to be united with God again, to be one. If you've heard, atonement means at one meant. That's exactly right. The word was in fact coined for that purpose. It's a, theo- a theologian made it up, and it stuck. At one meant mean, meaning being at one with God. There are four. The word atonement per se is actually a later invention of the church. There are four words that lead to the one word atonement. So atonement is an umbrella over all the other words. The word number one is propitiation, and it is from the realm of, of uh, the cult, of religion, of sacrifice, of priests, okay, who want to get right, help the people get right with God and put away God's anger. Second word is justify, or justification, and that's a courtroom word. It's a word from the courtroom, and the idea is that mankind appears before God and has to render account for the deeds done in the body, whether good or evil. I'm quoting the Bible there. And we're, we're called before God as judge, right? That's a common image of the God in the Bible. And God, the judge, is ready to declare us guilty. We are guilty and we expect it. But Jesus comes in and says, I will bear their guilt for them. So he bears our punishment. And that so far, that would leave us neutral. Okay, now we don't have any bad deeds. But then not only does he do that, but we're also clothed in the righteousness of Christ so that when God looks at us, he sees Christ's good deeds. And he justifies us, meaning he declares us righteous. That's what justify means, to declare righteous or to declare innocent. That's the second word third word that is used that you'll hear is the word redemption. The word redemption is from the realm of commerce. You redeem something, you buy it back. You regain, uh, you regain somebody. It was used originally of slaves. Somebody falls into slavery, you buy them back. Out of slavery. Like Hosea did with his wife, right? Buy them back out of slavery. 
It's like we're on the auction block. We've fallen under the control, or not, maybe not on the auction block. We've fallen under the control of an evil master. Sin. Satan. Death. Jesus buys us out of that slavery. The fourth term is reconciliation. Where reconciliation is from the realm of personal relationships. And the idea is that when we sin, and when we sin against someone else, there is a breach in the relationship. There is estrangement. But Jesus does what is necessary to end that estrangement. And if I can put it this way, well, Cedric here, Cedric's writing here, and I just grab his pen and I just break it in half. And I, but I break it in half outward, so that not only can he not take notes anymore, but the ink sprays in his face. Well, now, you know, Cedric and I have known each other for a while. We're, you know, we've had many cordial conversations, and Cedric would, you know, maybe rightly be somewhat angry at me for doing that, wouldn't he? Can you see that? Back to the idea of God's just anger. And reconciliation is ending the breach caused by an offense. But the breach, the breach coming from my side is not solved by me. I'm still holding Cedric's pen. But Cedric says, Dan, that's all right. I still love you. You're still my friend. See? <laughs> Cedric says, you offended me, but I come to you. See, here's what can happen when we sin. We offend God, then we feel bad, we run away from God, we shy away from God, we want to avoid God. God comes to us. He doesn't wait for us to come back saying, can we be reconciled? Hey, God, can I be reconciled? He comes to us first. He reconciles us to himself, as Paul says. Those are the four main words that are used to describe getting right with God. The one that, that uh, John uses here, I wanted to use this occasion to talk about the others. The one that John uses here is the first of them, the word propitiation. So, John wants to be sure that we, um, that we know that we belong to him. What does John want to do? He wants to pop the bubble of the presumptuous. He wants to afflict the falsely comforted. If you don't pass these tests, you're not a Christian. But he also wants to comfort the afflicted. If you're having doubts, you can be sure you belong to Christ. The objective testimony about Christ touching him, his ministry, his sacrifice. The subjective testimony. Look at yourself, he says. If you're fundamentally loving the brothers, if you're fundamentally obedient, not perfect, but fundamentally walking with God, then take heart from that and don't let your feelings lead you astray. Uh, very, very briefly, Second and Third John. Just want to give you a little snippet of, of what they're about. Uh, second and Third John are taking up many of the same themes as First and Second John. Um, some are denying the incarnation of Jesus. Some are claiming sinlessness and so forth. Uh, I'm not going to talk about those. We already covered those. The, uh, the letters both deal with a practical problem. That is, how do you handle, how do you approach traveling Christian missionaries? Now, you have to understand why this problem would even come up. There is no mission board. You know that, right? There are no fax machines, telephones, you know... There are no banks. There's nothing. The gospel spreads by Christians going around from place to place sharing the good news. But the problem is there are also false teachers. So what do you do? I'll tell you one other thing. 
church grew in its infancy by Christian travelers consciously viewing this as an opportunity to spread the gospel. And you didn't want to stay in inns in antiquity because they were places that were routinely associated with drinking, gambling, prostitution, and so on. You tried to stay with somebody you knew, if at all possible. The difficulty, of course, is that even as a good teacher would, would you know, want a place to stay with the church, so would a bad teacher. And so John says essentially two things in his two letters. In, in Second John, he says, don't welcome false teachers. In Third John, he says, do welcome true messengers. And that's basically the gist of it. Uh, in, in verses 10 and 11, there is one thing I'll just mention very briefly to you. In verse 10 of Second John, it says, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. Now, I am not a hyper-literalist. I think you know that by now. But I do apply this literally to Mormons and Jehovah's Witness people who come to my door. I do not let them in. I do not offer them lemonade, water, or iced tea. I want them to be miserable. I want them to feel this is horrible. I can't wait to quit. I want them to quit. I want them to be discouraged. Occasionally, I do talk to them. And when I talk to them, I do not make nice. When they say, you're a Christian, I'm a Christian, let's have a chat. I say, I'm a Christian, you're not a Christian, let's have a chat. I've never said those exact words. But that's what I'm driving at. I have told Mormons on my porch, stop lying to me. Stop telling me that you have an Orthodox Christology, because you don't. And you know you don't. And I find out who the leader is and say, listen, don't stand on my porch and deny your doctrine. You've got a Mormon standing right beside you. Don't pretend you're the same as me. Don't deny your higher teachings. You know that you do not believe that Jesus is the one and only Son of God. And why would you deny your teaching to win me at the cost of misleading your own disciple? You should see the disciples' eyes when I say these things. You should see them take off in a hurry. <laughs> and I'm, I'm glad to disrupt them. And I'm glad I do not give them anything to drink or to eat. I don't pat them on the back. And I don't, I don't pretend we're just having a nice little religious chat. I say, you're a heretic, I'm a Christian, I'm willing to talk about that, if you'd like to talk. But we're not the same, because you don't, you don't affirm the Christ that I affirm. And I, and I do apply that literally. And I would encourage you, if you're going to talk to Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, don't be real sweet and ultra polite, unless they're starting to come around. Now, if they're starting to come around, then you can start to be nice to them. But... Uh, I do take Second John 10 in that way. I'm, I'm using a little bit of hyperbole here, perhaps, just a little. I'm not really mean to them, but I, I do get pointed with them, and I don't let them pretend that we're all agreeing on everything.